battle that I've had in my mind and the dark thoughts that I've had, the suicidal ideations and wanting to take your own life is a very dark place. So getting into a ring and getting punched in the head, cool, like hit me as hard as you want, knock me out, but it's still not going to be as hard and dark as the battles that I've had to go through and overcome in my mind. So for me, it's like, that's what I love. I've been able to overcome something that nothing else will ever be as hard as. That's Ryan Waite. He's a youth worker who spends most of his days sharing his life experience to help guide young men in a positive direction. And that's what's motivated me to this day is just to really not want anyone to ever feel what I felt. Just 25, Ryan has survived more hardship than most. After his mother passed away when he was 11, Ryan's dad descended into alcoholism and became abusive, forcing Ryan to move out of home with his brother as a teen. So when I was 14, my brother was 21 and I had to make the decision I leave my family home with all the memories that I had with my mum. Ryan battled with anxiety and depression and even after finding a great psychologist, fell in with the wrong crowd and turned to drugs to avoid facing his emotions. That lifestyle wasn't what I wanted to be like. I knew that there was something more to life. In his early 20s, Ryan's dad died of cancer and he felt so lost he planned on suicide. But fortunately, it wasn't to be the end. So when my dad did, pass away, everything sort of hit rock bottom for me because just so many emotions. And then I had a lot of anger still as well from, from the past that I hadn't dealt with. Throughout it all, Ryan has been living with ADHD, a condition he views as his superpower. ADHD has a very common theme with all these people. We're creative, we're empathetic. We never talk about the positives. We're always focused on the negatives. Now he's a Muay Thai fighting weapon and inspiration to many with a heart of gold. He's deeply thankful is still beating. I'm here for a purpose. I'm grateful for so many things that have come my way. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson. I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. Trigger warning, if you find anything spoken about in today's episode distressing, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Ryan, what did you love about your mum? What did I love about my mum? She had a smile, man. She had the most beautiful kind, a smile and heart. She had the most kind-hearted heart and smile. A smile that would light up a room wherever she was, man. Yeah. Mm. And what sort of person was she for you and your brother and, and your father? Oh, the, the rock. The one that kept, kept us in line to be who we are now. If it wasn't for my mum, the values that she taught me, from the early age that I've able to now use in my life. My mom taught me everything, taught my brother everything, helped my dad through a lot as well. And what did she teach you was important as a young boy? Kindness and being polite, just treating people with respect. Genuinely, man, just being a good, good person, being kind to each and every person I come across as best as I can. And did you imagine her always being there? 100%. So how did she pass away? So she passed away in 2007 from ovarian cancer. Just have to check the year then. It's been a while. It's been mm. 12, 13 years. And longer. how long did that happen after she was diagnosed? It was a three-year period. So my mom actually got in remission for a couple for a year or so. No, it was a year. And then she had secondary cancer. Then the, the third came back. Then unfortunately that that did take her take her life. 
And you're only 11 when she died, I believe. Correct, yeah. So what was it like for you from 8 to 11 going through that? How much did you understand, like, the implications? Honestly, bro, straight out nothing. Because when I got told, it was my mom was getting a, an operation for because she was an, an older woman. She had me when she was 41. They said that she had to get um, go through menopause. I think that's what they call it. I could be yep. saying it incorrectly. Um, so they take the ovaries out. And I just thought it was a standard procedure for my mom um we were going to queensland it was the night before i found out actually that my mom was having an operation the following week so i didn't really think too much of a man but then it was until when my mom started going through chemotherapy she started losing her hair she was in hospital more than she was at home you're spending more time in hospital than you are at home visiting your mom it started to you start to build an image and you start to understand it a little bit more i mean i was still quite young and naive but yeah it, it's hard man you don't you don't really understand it completely mm. yeah did you expect that things were going to get better and she was going to come home and it would all resolve? 100%, even to the day she passed away. So it was a period I was at school and my cousin picked me up. She took me to the hospital and they told me that my mum was going to pass away, unfortunately, within like 24 to 48 hours and we should say our goodbyes. And I remember sitting at the hospital, it was in Sydney, Calvary Hospital, um, and on the stairs, just bawling my eyes out. I still remember it clearly now. And I was just like, fuck, like... Like why I shouldn't be, I'm 11 years old and my mom's, I'm being told my mom's going to be taken away from me. And I just was every emotion, like you can think of, I was feeling angry, pissed off. And then, so I did take on my goodbyes and then a day went by, two days went by, three days went by, four days went by. And then I'm like, all right, like you told me 24 to 48 hours and she's still here. A week went by. My mom lasted two weeks. So by the time the two week came, I started to think, like you just said, man, like, uh, was she coming home today? So mm. I started to get a bit more hope. And then when it did happen, I'll, I was a bit taken off guard because I was like, oh, shit. I had put in my head that she may be coming home. But the reality then did sink in, obviously. Um, yeah. yeah. It made it even worse. And then 100%. trying to come to grips with the fact that your mum wasn't going to come back as such a young person. I mean, I don't think it matters when you lose a parent that you love, like it's mm -hmm. always going to hurt for the rest of your life. But especially, especially that young, you must have had years there where it was a shock that, you know, she was still gone. It's an interesting thing because I went from year six, right? I lost my mom when I was in year six. So, so many changes already in my life, moving schools, going, growing up as a, like a, a young boy, trying to find myself, going through puberty. It's an interesting stage of my life as well, or any boy's life, any girl's life, anyone's life. Yep. So there were so many factors going on that I don't think I ever really dealt with it. Well, I never knew how to deal with it anyway. There's no like grief and loss and death has never really been spoken about. It still isn't. Mm. And I love talking about it. I know it sounds a bit unique that I do, but I, I love talking about death because we have to talk about it to overcome it and go through it. And unfortunately sure. I didn't. And for many years I just suppressed it. And during those years I did experience a lot and my mental health did take a, did take a, a big hit, but there was other factors going on as well. It wasn't just dealing with, the loss of my mom. Unfortunately, my dad didn't deal well with the loss of my mom as well. So that impacted me quite a bit mm. um, as well. So what did her passing do to your family unit? It changed everything, man. It, as death does to anyone's life, it's going to impact it. And unfortunately, it, it puts you on a path, but going through adversity can make you better. But how it impacted my family, my life, my dad was a alcoholic. I'm not ashamed to say that he was because that's how we dealt with it all the time, every day. And when my mom did pass away, that increased. And then he did leave his job, then in gambling and mm. other things started to come out. Unfortunately, I had to move out of home. So when I was 14, my brother was 21. 
And I had to make the decision. I leave my family home with all the memories that I had with my mom, my dog, everything like this. I had a really beautiful childhood. Neighbors were amazing. I had to leave that to know that this is going to give me a better opportunity in my life living with my brother. And also part of me was, oh, sick. It's my 21-year-old brother. I can do what I want when I want. Yeah. But yep. it was still a really hard decision to make. And I did make that decision and I did move out with my brother. So, yeah. And that childhood you had had been ripped away from you and it was no fault of your own. I mean, there must have been a hell of a thing to go through to have all those memories fresh in your mind of when everything was going well and your happy family to then, you know, shit hit the fan and it just it just all imploded. And it must have been like, you know, what the fuck happened there? And it's just crazy in life, though, how a few things like that happening beyond our control can totally derail multiple lives and you're just left to try and pick up the pieces with it. Just to go back, when you were... um. When you were living with your dad in those years following your mum's mm-hmm. death, what was it like being around him? What kind of emotions did you feel? It was quite hostile. It was quite abusive, not physically, but emotionally. Um, my dad was an incredible man deep down. I know my dad loved my brother and I massively, but he had his own traumas as a child, as he's, as an adult and experienced a loss of his wife. Not being able to cope and deal with his emotions, that impacts the people around him and that's, we've never been told as males or anyone really to understand our emotions. So I had a lot of anger towards my dad for many, many years during that period because I blamed him for why everything happened. And I don't blame him anymore. I just realized that that was his reaction to what he was dealing with and how he dealt with it. He didn't know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a lot more empathy towards the situation and understand why, because no one's perfect and I'm not perfect. Our parents aren't perfect. And yeah, I, I mean, understanding how I, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, bro. My ADHD sometimes. No, you're right, man. Everything you're saying is on point. Yeah. But so. um, but yeah, I, I totally relate to you in that regard where you think of a parent when you're a kid as someone who's supposed to have all the answers and have it all figured out mm-hmm. and they keep you safe and make sure everything goes as it's supposed to go. Uh, and it's not till you're older that you start to realize they were just a, an adult growing up themselves, going through different stages and facing their own challenges whilst trying to have to put up a front like they had everything under control. And then when things go down, like what happened to your family, uh, I guess, yeah, over time you can develop empathy for how painful that would have been and what that would have been like for your dad to go through that. But as a young kid, like you can't see it from that angle. All you know is how you feel inside and, and you have that resentment that your mom's gone and your dad's not coping and you've been left in this situation. And and on that, but anyone, not even a kid though, I think for me to come to terms with that though, it wasn't an easy process either. Like I talk about it now, like, yeah, my dad's all G, but man, I had years of a lot of anger and a lot of my own journey that I had to understand and go through. And that was talking about it, understanding my loss and grief and accepting my loss and grief and talking with psychologists, going, doing things about my mental health and understanding my emotions so much better. Because unfortunately, like I said earlier, you got to get through the shit, you got to talk about the shit. Yeah. And it's uncomfortable, but you have to do it if you want to overcome that. Yeah, feel you feel better, you gotta, happy. you got to face up to it. What did you do with that anger when you were so angry as a kid? Honestly, I channeled it into sport. I mean, I didn't really have... I loved baseball. I played baseball most of my life. I played different sport. I was quite an overweight kid up until the age of when I, no, when I moved out of home, actually, I was an overweight kid. Cause naturally when things are not going too well, you're going to eat unhealthily. You, it comes out in other areas of your life. So I started doing sport. I lost quite a bit of weight as a kid and I, I was really good at running. I did the triathlon. 
Um, but then I was working a lot. So living at a home, trying to pay bills, rent, whilst trying to go to school too, mm. the energy, all my all my effort was put to that. And so my life was like, I was like an adult, but I, I call myself an underage adult because I was. Yeah. And then a lot of people would come up to me like, oh, you're so mature for your age. But then they would treat me mature in certain aspects of my life, but then treat me like a kid in other areas. Yep. Um, and I, I did make the mistake. I did make a lot of mistakes in my, my, my childhood and and my teenage years, but you got to learn from your mistakes. And unfortunately that's how I learned through life. I don't have a single degree to my name, but I've just created my own business. I'm doing some pretty cool shit. And yeah, so it just shows you that like your circumstances and what school doesn't mean mean anything. If you really want to set yourself, I know that you hear a cliche if you set yourself to it, it, you genuinely can, we can learn whenever we want, if we really set ourselves and set our minds to do it. Did you recognize that you had anxiety and depression when you were around like 14, 15? Yeah. Yeah. So my mental health journey in that aspect got to a point around 14, 15. My brother came home, found me balling my eyes out. And he said to me, like, we finally spoke about what was going on. So I was taken to the doctors. That's when I was started medication and I was chucked on a mental health care plan. I did start to see a psychologist, but the first session, I, I, to be blunt, I hated it. And then I was like, nah, stuff this. They're all, they're all shit. I'm not going to talk to anyone. Yeah. Like, well, I, pretty I typical reaction. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not, I don't want to, I'm a man. I was a, well, man, growing up in a, a male dominant environment, I went to an all boys school. Yeah. Talking about your emotions. Like, come on, man, that's unheard of back then. Yeah. So, but I did. I, I slowly started to understand it, but. Did I you did. go back to the same psychologist or a different one? No, no, I never did. I still have my same, I actually had my psychologist this morning, but I, I see my psychologist weekly now. For me, it's just like going to the gym. It's exactly like, I know we hear that, but we service our minds, but no, we service our cars before they break down. Why don't we service our minds? <laughs> yeah, and then, absolutely. So, how long did it yeah. take to find that psychologist then? How long have you been seeing them for? A year now, consistently online through a um, psychology service called Listen. Honestly, great service. It's an Australian-based one. You can have, it's like, don't want to say Tinder, but like it is in a way. You've got choices for different psychologists, you get a little bit of a, a background on them and it, it just makes you a bit more comfortable in your own comfort area and home, chilling out. I have my puppy sit with me. Yeah. It's just, it's easy and you get to talk to someone. I love it. And have you found other psychologists that matched well with you in the past before this? Oh, one? definitely. I've had a few throughout. Oh, I mean, I've, I couldn't even tell you how many psychologists that I've had. Um, yep. The multiple different ones, but you just got to find the one that right fits. So to me, it's like dating. The first one might go okay, but the second one might go, oh, shit. And then all you're like, thank you next. So it's just yeah. trialing it and just, yeah, I use that Ariana Grande saying it is because it generally is like dating. And for me, once I took that approach, I'm, it was fun. That's a tough part of finding a psychologist is that I think people expect that they can just walk in and the first person that they meet, it's going to be the right one for them. But I'm pretty sure the average is sort of somewhere between four and six that people go and see before they find one that they really want to see consistently. So it can actually yeah. take a pretty long time to yeah, yeah, find yeah. someone who suits you. And obviously, if you're a bloke or a woman, yeah. but particularly a bloke, and you go and talk about stuff that you feel like you shouldn't talk about, and then you feel like you don't get the response you want or you don't have the connection, then the response is going to be to clam up and, and perhaps mm -hmm. not share it again. And that's a big, a big focus for psych practices now that I talk to is not just getting men in because more men are going in now at, to access services in the first place, which is a great thing, but actually retaining them as well mm -hmm. um, and, and trying to get that recidivism rate up.
Hundred percent. Yeah, I was fortunate. I facilitated a men's mental health growth room last year called the Banksia Project. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Such- I've had uh, I've had is it Jack on the podcast? Oh, Jack Jones. Yeah, yeah he's yeah, a legend. Yeah. I, I met him through Sydney University. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the uni there. So I, as he would have told you all about it, like the when it's it's such a powerful thing when you've got a bunch of blokes from like all walks of life, but we're connecting through mental health and sharing what's going on in our lives. It was just such a beautiful thing to be a part of. Yeah. Um, and that, that's what it, what the world is moving towards now as well in the mental health is that that peer-led experience to um, peer support working, lived experience is coming up now more and more because they're seeing that people's lived experiences are just as valuable as a degree. Well, because- it's that crucial part of the puzzle. Like both sides of it are important, but without actually putting faces to stories and having humanity to connect to, you know, the facts and the research and the numbers don't really mean much. So both sides of those things are are crucial, especially if we're talking about working with young people, young boys, uh, and trying to get a message across. You know, Mm -hmm. someone like you who's got your story and is able to articulate it the way you do with that sort of confidence and passion, that's going to get through to them more than a textbook or something like that, you know? And that's the thing I never learned in school because they taught you what to learn. They don't really teach you how to learn. And schools are very systematic approach. They have one way of learning. And then they judge you off one test at the end of the 12 years or the 13 years. And then yeah. if you don't do well, it's like, ah, you're, you're fucked, really. You, you're not, you know, hope. But it means realistically, we've put such a pressure on these kids and that, that impacts their mental health. And that's what it is an issue in society now is the pressure that we put on kids to tell them what they need to decide on their future at the age of 17, 18. Yeah. Like I'm 25 and now it's taken me, in the last couple of years, I've really understood what I want and my purpose in life. Yeah. So yeah, but it's, yeah, how can you decide that before you know who you are and what your skills are and what the world exactly looks right. like? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough. And if point. the schools aren't allowing us to actually explore our skills too, so yeah, and I think like hopefully that's slowly starting to shift. Like I've been doing some work with an entrepreneurial school here in Adelaide that teaches like nine courses outside of just your standard English actually, math science. Wow. Um, so I went and did a podcasting course with them, connect them to like future industry, that sort of thing. So there That's, are some, some schools starting to think like, all right, so what about the kids who don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or a trainee mm-hmm. necessarily, but they want to, you know, do something creative in the social media space or something like that. Exactly and I think right. that's where it needs to go because the fact is there are so many avenues to work and make money and live a different lifestyle now that if you know how to do it and you're willing to still dedicate yourself to it, you can make a, a different life for yourself. But anytime that's de- deviating from the traditional path, it's going to make people uncomfortable in, in the beginning because, well, parents and, and other people who haven't mm-hmm. seen that done before are going to be worried that that's not a real thing and you're not going to make it. But I think over time, um, we're starting to show kids that there is another way as long as they still apply themselves and they find some 100%. purpose. They can still help other people in some way. You, you're, you're putting like the nail on the head, man, because for me, COVID has shown that a lot because kids or parents, right, they actually have to help their kids learn too at home or guardians, whatever the situation may be. So they got to see how difficult it is for teachers to teach their kids. And then, then they start to see a different perspective and yeah. now they're hearing it. And then, but then the kids that actually do flourish, as I have my perspective that ADHD is an environmental condition. You put a kid that might not flourish in the classroom, but he's at home allowed to do his little things, explore, go do his little escapes to make himself feel good. He may, he may have done better during COVID lockdown. You know what I mean? It's a double-edged sword. It was good and bad, but ultimately it made people realize that there's not a single approach for everything and we mm. can't have this single-minded approach. And that's with my ADHD. 
that's what they've had in the past in the in society is that that ADHD. But it's I loved hearing that about your school and the work that you've done because in 10, 15 years, that's the exciting part. All those kids that got those opportunities are going to be creating amazing things. They're going to be doing crazy stuff. And then the action and the work speaks for itself. And the studies and the science, like like the society that we used to live in can literally, but they can't say anything anymore because these people have actually been allowed to explore their true strengths and find who they are and work with those. And yeah. yeah so, I mean, I love that stuff. I love hearing that because we're, we're moving to a really cool world. I know there's a lot of negativity in the world society at the moment, but there's also a flip side where we're moving forward and that's cool. We've got to try and stay positive as best as we can. Like can't dismiss the shit that's going on, but also look at the cool shit that's happening too. Absolutely, man. It's an amazing time to be alive. Like, I'm so glad I'm alive at this time. Obviously, because like me being a podcaster wouldn't have been much use any other time. Uh, But genuinely, uh, like this stuff's perfect timing for you, my man. Yeah, exactly. But this sort of thing, like, there's just so many opportunities these days for young people to go and do something that's never been done before, Mm -hmm. and then show everyone that that is legitimate. And then, of course, the system as a whole will start to follow slowly over a number of years once there's proof that okay, there are more ways to skin a cat than just the traditional means so yeah i I think it's an amazing time to be alive and and be able to explore so many opportunities and as an entrepreneur or someone who's got an idea wants to make something happen if you can think of something and you can find some basic equipment and, and talk to some people about it like you can get onto it and start making something happen even if it's something that other people will tell you like oh you can't do that or that's not a thing you can actually make it into one which is pretty amazing like obviously you've done that yourself um, so when you were living with your brother, what was yeah. that like? Because he was 21. He's obviously in that like partying stage of his life with older friends and that. And I'm guessing like were you brought into that? Was he like that? Because it was such a big age gap, it was a little bit hard to... I mean, I did hang out with his friends and I'm very grateful. Like a lot of his friends helped me out and I'm very grateful for them. Because there's a few that I will repay one day too for some things that they've done for me in my past. I never forget things. Um, yeah, so there was that, but I was, I was lucky because they were... I just didn't have one brother. I was fortunate to have a few older brothers too. Like that weren't actually my, but you know what I mean? So, but then there was that freedom too. So my brother was 21. He has his own life to live and he's trying to understand himself. He also lost his mom. He's also moving out of his family home. And him and my dad clashed a lot more than I did probably a bit because he was a bit older. He understood it a little bit more. So that gave me the freedom to sort of do what I wanted when I wanted so I could not go to school because why would you go to school if I'm tired from working and I'm going to go to school and learn about math and like, what, what's the point, man? I need to learn how to pay my bills. I need to learn how to budget instead of, so for me, I prioritize my work because at the end of the day, I needed to pay rent. I needed to pay bills. Um, how long so, did you stay that, in school for? No, I finished year 12. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Not very with the best marks. Um, I'll be honest. I don't know really know how I did yeah. pass. There's, what, I've seen what, kept you in it? Like, what kept you in school through that whole time? Honestly, I think it was the structure or something getting me there. Um, or my mum, honestly, my mum loved the schools that I went to because she put my brother through there. And before my mum passed away, I, I got an early acceptance letter just for my mum, just to give to my mum before she passed away. So I knew my mum wanted me to go to the school. And I'm not a very religious person, but my mum did love Mary McKillop, who is and um, yeah. the Kamaris brothers' culture and the schooling system. So... Yeah, I think for me, it was my mum that kept me in there, very honestly. Like I said, I struggled going to church. I'm not, and now I'm very spiritual, and I, I believe there's something up there. I'm not against religion, but it's just been interpreted differently. I won't go into that. But it was, it was part of your way to, to honour your mum. 
Definitely, hundred percent. I want to. Everything I do is for my parents, man. I just want to make my mom and dad proud. That's all I am. I'm just a kid from just a bloke <laughs> trying to make his parents proud. And oh man, I'm sure yeah. you have. I uh, hope so, man. Yeah. Oh no doubt. How did ADHD affect you through your whole schooling life? It, honestly, like I didn't realize how much it impacted me until a couple of years ago when I was like, "Fuck!" I got away with a lot of shit. My ADHD got sort of put to the side because of I'd lost my mom and I'd moved out of home. So my behaviors that is normally associated with people with ADHD was just, Oh, no, it's cause he's lost his mom. Mm. So no one ever actually like addressed it to me in high school. I knew I was diagnosed as a young kid. So I always knew that I had it and my mom never really medic. I didn't, she didn't medicate me. My brother was medicated for a little bit, but she just did a different approach. And I think I look back now at my primary school and the environment that I was in. There was a reason why my mum sent me to that primary school because the it was a cool bush area, mad area to learn. The environment was just really unique in nature. So then I fast forward, sorry, to where we are now. I wanted to learn about it because I started to see, hang on a second, like people are talking about ADHD, that it's a negative thing. But all I've understood that like Thomas Edison had ADHD, Albert Einstein had ADHD. It started to piss me off. So yeah. I'm like, hang on a second, I've got to this point in my life and now I'm looking at myself like, you got to tell me I've got a deficiency and a disorder. Mm. And I was like, all right. So I went through the process, went last year, I got in my journal there. I was like, all right, I'm going to explore. No, two years ago, I'm going to explore my ADHD. Started, went on some medication for a bit. Didn't feel feel myself on it. Trialed it for a while. Like I felt like I needed it at times. I didn't like that. I didn't want to be needing something to make me function. And then I started to, and then I read this book. It's called The Hunter in a Farmer's World. And it's by Tom Hartman. Hartman, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. Um, changed my perspective on ADHD. It's it's talking about how ADHD was actually, we're just living out of our environment, right? Um, you look at hunters a thousand years ago, distractibility was needed a thousand years ago because that could have meant whether or not you ate for your tribe or you hunted or got killed. Yeah. See, and so I'm not trying to say that farmers, which people without ADHD are bad or anything, they complement each other. We're needed for both one another. So for me, it's just, we're living out of our environment now. So you look at fighters for me, like I look at a lot of fighters, top fighters, they're very creative, charismatic. ADHD has a very common theme with all these people. We're creative, we're empathetic. We never talk about the positives. We're always focused on the negatives, Mm. but that's because they've judged us through one systematic, like I said earlier, for society. So for me, ADHD is a made up thing, genuinely, because how ADHD is, why they've made it. Sorry if I'm going on a bit of a rant here, man. I'm very passionate about this. Um, But ADHD was made so people could find a reason to fix something, right? We need a label, yeah, which is fine to work towards. But the reason that ADHD is a thing now, it's medicalized, then they can make money through medication. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say medication's not good for everyone. There is a place for it in certain workplaces or the type of job that you do in certain environments, but that's your decision to work in that environment. If you choose a job that's in an environment that works with your ADHD, you won't need medication personally. Mm-hmm. But and science has shown that there's studies that they've got that show why medication works is based off very minimal evidence. And that's the cool thing now, why I talk about it openly, because all you have to do is a bit of research yourselves and realize that they actually don't even know what they're talking about with ADHD. And that's the cool thing. That's why I'm so passionate about what I'm talking about, what I'm doing now is because I feel like I'm onto something here. Me understanding my emotions, going through my journey of understanding myself and understanding my love for myself. That's what drives ADHD. And that's what drives me is self-love and loving other people. And then 
Yeah. So how have you been able to utilize that condition and make it work for you in your life and use it, you know, to your advantage, if anything? Yeah. Um, where did I start? I was able to lose like 33 kilos. I was able to fight in Muay Thai. Um, I've done a lot of different jobs. For me, I public speak and that's what I, I'm allowed, the energy. That's the biggest part of it is it, public speaking isn't easy. I've, I've been speaking and sharing in schools for a while now. Um, yeah, just sharing my story, trying to inspire kids to empower them to talk about their mental health in case they are struggling. Because I felt that I never want any kid to feel alone. I never want anyone to feel how I felt. And by me sharing my story, if I can change one life, then I'm a happy person. So for me, that's how I use my energy with my ADHD. Like I, it's nerve wracking talking and getting in front of a group and sharing your story and being vulnerable with these people. But for me, I know the impact that it could have on one person. And that's where the confidence comes from. And that's where my ADHD allows me to just get that bit of energy to get that bit more charisma up in stage or to try and yeah, just to be a bit more powerful when I talk. So mm. just working with it, man. Cause you say you view it as a superpower rather than a hindrance. Oh, hands down, man. It's my superpower, right? Straight out. I love it. It's, and I, and that's what I do with the ADHD kid Academy is I'm going to show kids and I am showing kids and adults how to understand their superpower. Cool, man. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's not, it's not a story you hear ever really. You don't hear anything about ADHD from people who have it. Um, and it's kind of stereotypically just that kid that can't sit down who gets some Ritalin chucked at him and then that's the end of the story. Uh, and we don't really know much about that. So it's a very interesting way to put it and it's great that you're out there talking about it like that. Um, if you were to look up ADHD now, right, just this last little thing, then what the, I mean, symptoms of ADHD, they're all behaviours of people or things, but what is a behavior? A behavior is an expression of an emotion. So that's like, well, okay, if I understand my emotions, I can understand my behaviors. Then my behaviors dismiss every single symptom of ADHD has, but I still have this thing that you so-called a disorder or a deficiency. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, yeah. I yeah. don't know if that made sense. Well, but... so you're, you're, you're saying it comes down to having a handle on your emotions because that's going to then dictate your behaviors. So do you yeah. feel like the more you've been able to understand and watch yourself on an emotional level, the more you've been able to control your ADHD? hundred percent. I've been able to create my own business out of it. The past two years, the amount of things that I've been able to do in terms of my speaking, just working on myself individually and just trying to grow as a person and allowing and learning just as a person is yeah accepting myself because we live i did i thought i couldn't learn because society's perception of what adhd was or is so for many years i thought i was stupid i thought i was dumb i thought i was lazy but i wasn't i just wasn't doing the things that i enjoyed give me a purpose behind the reason and i'll do it 110 better than anyone else and that's that's the cool thing about it you ask anyone with adhd the things that they enjoy they've got a purpose behind it they are incredible at what they do. Yeah. And that's the cool thing. The more and more people I talk to with ADHD, they share that with me because I'm so open about it. And that's why I want to create an army. I know that people with ADHD are as passionate as I am and they know that they're not disordered or deficient. It's going to be and a high cool energy thing. army, bro. That's it. Straight out it will be. And there'll probably be some fighters too because there's a lot of fighters that have ADHD as well. And that's the cool thing because that's why we're hunters. We're trying to feel like we did a thousand years ago. Do you think that's because that requires that 100% level of focus? 110%. 110%. And you look at the best fighters in the world though. Israel Adesanya, for one example, who won yesterday. We won't go into that. But he understands himself on an emotional level. The guy talks about his emotions. He meditates. That's that's what separates him from the others, I guarantee. I mean, he's an incredible athlete physically, 
but you look at his mental game, he's above the rest. So that, that's why, and that's personally why he's my favorite, just because of the way that he talks and the way he conducts himself and who he is as a person. So you seem to be saying that kids who might be diagnosed with ADHD, it's not necessarily that they can't learn or they have a deficiency. It's just that they haven't found the thing to focus on that they need to find. And if they find that thing, which obviously takes longer or they find something they truly enjoy that they're passionate about, then they're going to be potentially brilliant at that, at doing that thing and being able to focus. Yes, to a degree. There's also a lot of other components too. So it's an environmental and emotional. So for me, when it comes to the emotional aspect, understanding your emotions, but your environment also impacts how your emotions feel too. Yeah. And that yeah. for me, the driver of ADHD and I, I is love and feeling that self-love. So as a kid, my mum was the most loving person and I, I'm glad that I was able, I'm able to project that now. I'm a, I like to feel like I'm a kind individual and I give a lot of love out. And for me, when I started to love myself more and more, that's when it was easier to do things and my ADHD was better. And then I look back and I was like, we look at relationships and unfortunately ADHD impacts relationships a lot, but it's because we allow and not understanding it. And that's when I started to understand how my ADHD was impacting my own self and my self-love. So for me, it was the, and that's why with anxiety and depression is one of the biggest things you, you don't love yourself. Yeah. Um, so I'm going around here, man. Oh, sorry, I just, I, yeah. That's good, man. I, you said a lot of great stuff in there. That was really interesting. Um, so I know there was a period of time where you, when you were still a young, there was a period of time when you were a young man where you got pulled in with the wrong crowd a bit and turned to drugs for a while. Like what led you into that? And then what got you out of that? Yeah, so when I was around 18, I started working in Bankstown. Um, some interesting characters. You learn a lot of positive and unfortunate hard lessons there. So you're in a, around boys that have got Rolexes, nice cars, going out the weekends, clubbing, partying. You think that's the lifestyle, that that materialistic things, that's what you want. And for me, it was like, oh, well, these guys that seem happy and they've got cash, they've got all these bundles of cash, they must. So for me, that's all right, sweet. I, I must, if I make money, I'll be happy. So then I was, you started partying and I, I tried to live that lifestyle, but I, I wasn't me. I just could never do it. I was too nice. And <laughs> genuinely, man, I was just got myself in debt and I just was too generous at times. And yeah, and, I, mm. and that's how I learned. And for me, I look at that as school fees. I feel like that my debt that I invested in that as school fees is way more valuable than any school fees that I paid actually. In, uh -huh. You know what I mean? Three so, lessons. Yeah. Did that get ugly at, at any stage? Yeah, I won't go into certain things that happened and I saw and friends that aren't here. And like, so he did, I did that. And that's sort of ultimately what got me out of it. I, I realized that they were impacting me negatively. As much as I had learned a lot and that lifestyle wasn't what I wanted to be like. I knew that there was something more to life. Um, and then my anxiety and depression wasn't going anywhere. And that was impacting it quite a lot. I needed to take myself out of that environment. Um, and that's when I did move. And, but the thing is, I did leave that environment, but it was still hard. There wasn't, it didn't, change everything but it did improve myself because i was around a bit more positive people but yeah it did get bad at times and what did muay thai do for you changed my life man it gave me an outlet to express my emotions in a positive way um i'm not a violent person if, not, yeah I, i'm very i'm not a violent person at all but for me fighting just does it, it lets me express my emotions in a in a real positive outlet in a controlled space too and it's a very spiritual sport too as you would know it's it's very humbling. It's very cultured. It's 
it's very unique in its in its art and it's a very beautiful sport. Yeah, there's nothing more humbling than getting kicked in the head as well. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely by a person that that's that, that size and yeah, and they're such and ties are such friendly people. And that's what I love the sport. It's it's you kick them in the head and then they'll shake your hand afterwards and go have a beer with you. So yeah, well, I've noticed that as well. Uh, the guys at my gym are extremely friendly and mm-hmm. even I've done Krav Maga as well. And again, like extremely friendly people. I think those who have that level of discipline and have trained in that way, uh, if you had no idea about martial arts or self-defense, you might expect them to be aggressive dickheads, but they're actually the most humble, um, nicest people ever, probably because they know that they could actually do some damage and then that allows people to relax uh, and have mm-hmm. respect for each other. And if you commit to training to training for an art uh, for so long, I think it just, yeah, it gives you that sense of calm and, and makes mm-hmm. you respectful and makes you uh, want to be more peaceful. And I think after you train hard, you're, you're peaceful as like, you're really, oh. you're really like relaxed afterwards. You, you just like laughing and smiling. Even if you're angry before you went in there, like there's no way you train and you're still mad. I find. You never, and yeah, you're hundred percent right. I mean, that it just allows you, you don't think about anything and it's just when you're there present, you're just there. Cause you can't, you have to think. Pardon me, you have to be present. Yeah, otherwise you're going to get rocked. <laughs> exactly. But then the flip side of Muay Thai and what I've found is, and you just shared that too, like your guys in your gym, the Muay Thai culture, the sport, the gyms that you come across, fighters have cool stories, man. You, you got to be a little bit interesting to want to get kicked in the head for fun. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so that's what I love. You get to meet dudes and ask them why they're training and they've always got a cool story. What got them there, why they're fighting or why they've chosen this sport. Yeah. So that's what I love too. The people that I've met through Muay Thai, the interesting people, lifelong friends. It's just, for me, it's, it's going to be part of my life for the rest of my life. And mm. I just can't wait. I'm only new. I've only had one amateur fight. Mm. Um, I'm still learning and it's just a sport that I love and I just love watching it. I love, I love learning and you've got to, yeah, for now that I'm allowed to learn that the fact that I've learned that I know I can learn for me is like, wow, I've still got a whole world, a whole life ahead of me. So it's exciting to see. What have you, what have you taken out of Muay Thai that you've been able to apply to the rest of your life or how has it flowed into the rest of your life? The fight or flight response, truly like we know, we talk about the flight or flight response when you're in a fight, you fight or flight, (laughs) you got to sit there and fight. So for me, if I can stand in that ring and understand myself and be not calm, but alert and control my emotions that is going to allow me to control my emotions in the other scenarios. And yeah. fighting in the ring, man, is nothing compared to the fight that, in the battle that you can have in your head. And I know, like I, I talk about Tyson Fury, and he talks about that. For me, the battle that I've had in my mind and the dark thoughts that I've had, the suicidal ideations and wanting to take your own life is a very dark place. So getting into a ring and getting punched in the head, cool, like hit me as hard as you want, knock me out, but it's still not going to be as hard and dark as the battles that I've had to go through and overcome in my mind. So for me, it's like, that's what I love. It's, it's, I've been able to overcome something that nothing else will ever be as hard as. So, And I guess part of it is like conquering yourself, right? Like conquering mm-hmm. your fears and wanting to feel fearless to a degree by challenging yourself and taking yourself out of your comfort zone. And especially being a peaceful guy who doesn't have an inclination to violence, it's the furthest thing from what you'd be comfortable doing. But if you're able to keep going to the point where you do become comfortable, then you've reached mm-hmm. this other level where you realize there are levels to you that you didn't know before. And then that can mm-hmm. apply to other parts of life because 100%. then suddenly you're the, as one example, but you're now the guy who 
wants to go after something that's scary but does the work anyway and keeps coming until you master it. And then if you apply that to other things in life, then the sky's the limit. 100%. And that is exactly right. That approach in even writing emails or for me, coming from a background of not going to school, my literacy and writing skills, so going into a workforce where that's needed, I had to push myself. I had to continually people laughed at me and made fun of my writing and be like, oh, you don't know how to spell and mm. stuff like that. But for me, it's, I sort of had to accept that because I knew that I had to learn this and this. And the same thing with Muay Thai, like you just said, it's just when no one's perfect and we all start from somewhere. And yeah, it's, that's right. It's, and it's and you, can't, you can't grow if you're not prepared to look like a fool first. Exactly right, that's 100%. Like, and I think that's, that's what puts people off especially if it's a hyper-masculine environment like combat mm-hmm. or something like that as a man because you'd rather not try and, and not have people see that you can't do it mm-hmm. than try, look like a baby giraffe and then feel shame and feel insecure about it. Exactly. Uh, a lot of people would would not even try or would give up straight away. It takes a lot. It takes courage to keep coming back and, and know that you suck at it and be like, yeah, that's okay. It's okay to suck at stuff because I'll get better. And exactly that, right. that's actually... You have to face that no matter what skill you're trying to learn, you're going to suck at it at the start and your ability to be able to front up to that and become comfortable with the uncomfortable is what separates people from learn how to, from those who learn how to do things and those who stay the same. The growth mindset or a fixed mindset, man, it's, it's pretty – my boss actually told me that one. We can summarize people into two different categories and I was like, yeah, it's not wrong. Like I don't like to – put people in categories, but it's true. You either want to learn or you don't want to learn and you're not open to change and learning. So yeah. And that's, I wasn't at times. I, through my stages of life, I, I hated the world. I was angry. I blamed everyone else for my problems. This person was why I felt that way. That person's why I felt this way. And then once you learn that you can control your emotions. And once I learn, I can control how I react to situations. Those people can't make me feel certain ways. I can make myself feel certain ways, not them. Yeah. And then that gives you the power. Exactly. Uh, I believe you were 23 and then you lost your dad to cancer as well. Yeah. So my dad passed away from throat, mouth and lung cancer from smoking and drinking. Um, And your relationship had been pretty rough for those years. Yeah. So it was around my 21st birthday, like from when I moved out of home up until my 21st, it wasn't really great. I was seeing my dad here and there. I'd call him. I still love my dad. And I mean, he was my dad and I couldn't, couldn't not. So but when I was told he was sick, I did sort of put that behind me and I, I did care for him quite a lot more. But unfortunately, my dad's mental health didn't go too well either during that period of him being sick. So I did have to try and support him through stages of him expressing quite a lot of suicidal ideations and a lot of times where he's telling me that he was going to take his own life. And as a kid trying to support his dad, it was just a lot to deal with. And so when my dad did pass away, everything sort of hit rock bottom for me because just so many emotions. And then I had a lot of anger still as well from, from the past that I hadn't dealt with. Yeah. And because I hadn't dealt with the anger, I was going through a process of my mom, that's the loss of my mom. So I wasn't just, I was dealing with two losses, of both my parents here and so many mixed emotions of anger and a lot of trauma from my childhood, unfortunately. Did it feel like you couldn't resolve it in a way because your mom was gone, your dad was gone. They were the objects of, some of your resentment, a lot of your pain, and then some of your anger with your dad. And then it's like, well, once they're gone, like, what do I do with this? 100%. And my parents, the people that are meant to be guiding you through life, 
are gone too. So for me, it's like, shit, I feel like I haven't got the skills or the guidance to take on this world. So then that's when you, you feel isolated, you feel alone. You don't feel like you can speak out, get help by anyone. Cause it's, it's such an isolating feeling. Um, and at the time men couldn't talk about their emotions. We couldn't talk about what was going on for us. We're told to toughen up, harden up. It's go for a beer. And that's when I did start going out partying. You start expressing these emotions in negative ways. And yeah, it's, it was tough. It was a really tough time. At that time, did you feel like for whatever reason you weren't meant to make it and, you know, things just didn't pan out how they were supposed to for you and that was beyond your control and, and that was just too bad? Is that sort of how you view things? Yeah, man, I always thought I was just cursed. I thought I had bad luck. There's nothing ever good happened. And whenever I used to say that, it didn't. And then that's where I started to realise that manifestation, it does, it put you tell the thing's going to go shit, you say this is negative, you be negative, you consistently blame others, it isn't going to get easier. I'm not saying it's easy to get out of that. Yeah. but It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whatever the story is, yeah. is that you tell yourself will become true because like you said with emotions guiding behaviours, you know, your thoughts also guide your actions as well. So mm -hmm. if you start to convince yourself of a particular narrative, then that's going to manifest over time, which mm -hmm. can be very hard to realise that you are somewhat in control of that anyway to be able to break yourself out of that but it led you to a point where you were suicidal you had a plan to actually take your own life and i know you messaged your brother at a crucial time what did that message say she said goodbye i was saying goodbye to my brother and i knew my brother wouldn't be awake it was 3 a.m yeah it was 3 a.m in the morning and he called me i was shocked i don't and for me it was like he must have been on his phone because it was one of those you send the message and he called straight away and I was like, shit, I was like, fuck, okay, my brother's calling me here, then maybe that's a sign from my mum, my dad, You like, I don't know. And at my hardest times when I was planning to take my own life, like you do look for a sign or you you think, is this like, it's, because you don't want to, and you don't really want to take your own life, but you don't feel like there's anywhere else, there's no hope. So for me to get like a glimmer, even like the smallest sign at that time, that my parents were there guiding me was like oh i took that and then that's what i grabbed and i just was like you know what i'm going to do this maybe it happened for a reason maybe there's a reason behind this i had to go through this shit so other people didn't and other people mm -hmm. don't have to go through it in the future maybe it's like all right i gotta i gotta go through this now so i can help others that are just like me and then that's what's got me to where i am now that's what's motivated me to this day is just to really not want anyone to ever feel what i felt and unfortunately it does happen and still statistically men do take their own life and the, the highest rate of death is in young people in Australia is suicide. What did your brother say to you when he called you? It was, a, it was just more just like go to my cousin's house. It was a, a 3 a.m. thing. It was more go to the hospital, go to my cousin's. Um, I wasn't too keen on going to hospital at that stage, but then I did end up voluntarily going to hospital. I ended up sleeping outside my cousin's house that morning actually because she, she has some kids and I didn't want to wake them up. And in the moment of me wanting to take my own life, I still had that, I don't know, like I didn't want to impact my cousins at that time. So I slept outside in the freezing cold um, on a little chair. And then I did voluntarily decide to go into hospital. Like my cousin spoke with me and she decided, and she helped me massively through that process. It was that non-judgmental and asking me what I needed. And a lot of people that are there for you during times that love you, they do want to help, but they tell you about a place of love 
but they're not actually listening to you and hearing out what you need. And that's what has understood for me now why I was able to overcome it was people started to listen to what I need, not what doctors told me that I needed. Not I didn't have the best experience in hospital. I didn't go to a place that I needed or not needed, but I shouldn't have been there, but I actually got a lot out of it anyhow. But yeah, yeah just so this is, I, I'm fortunate I've been able to change the system to myself, being involved in some research projects in emergency departments um, with the Black Dog Institute. So it's it's been it's been an interesting thing. I will go through my experience in ED. I hated it, but I needed it. But I didn't want others to go through that, and I felt like there's other avenues that people can go through when they are expressing suicidal thoughts or ideations. Because unfortunately, the system is broken in many ways, and it's it's shown that. And for me, that was something that I wanted to do and change, and I got the opportunity to do so. So there's a new system, uh, Mind Gardens, that's opening up at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. It's an alternative to ED. So the way that people attend the emergency department is a little bit more friendlier, more approachable, more catered towards why you're there and listening to what brought you in, not how did you try and take your own life and eliminating that risk, which mm. not isn't that which is a priority. Don't get me wrong. But why is that person coming in? Like, why are they trying to take their own life? Let's address the reasons. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a a perspective where there's more care for the individual uh, rather than just the black and white, uh, you know, seeing making you feel almost like a liability. Exactly right. It is. And then you're judged, quite judged in the system, unfortunately. Mental health has had a... it's, It's taking time for people to understand and come around to so there is that stigma that has come through the system too as well unfortunately and i hear Um, the same thing from men every single time we talk about suicide and and what's helped people at that point everyone has said that it was those who were able to just hold space with them and listen without judgment um, Mm -hmm. and not try to tell them what to do straight away like make sure that they felt as though they were actually there for them and then start having some conversations and perhaps like, well, just asking that person what they need from them, how they can help. Um, and number one, letting that person know that they care for them and they are heard and they can be seen uh, is like the most important starting point for that because it's also very confronting mm-hmm. for whoever is on the receiving end of that to try and say the right thing or know what to do in that scenario. 100%. And just reaffirming that point that first of all, listening and, and getting the message across that you love that person and you care about them that's like if you can do that um you've done pretty well 100 percent. and working at volunteering at feel the magic and helping the kids through that i've lost parents that's what it showed me was i'm not there to change this kid's life i'm just there to support him and guide him and know that he's not alone and that's all we need when we're at our darkest times we feel alone and i was fortunate that i had a mate at a time of my darkest times that he shared part of me that's something that helped me over those periods of time just to know that someone cares and, and that's that's all it is and sometimes takes it to know that someone genuinely loves you and that we want to feel loved and that's that's all i can say if anyone is there like trying to think that everyone wants to take their own life think there is people that care i fucking care like you know what i mean you would rather hear someone's story than attend their funeral so yeah yeah man absolutely um, how did things improve from that point? Like, how did you pull yourself out of that low point? Other than obviously the support that you have from people who mm-hmm. did the right thing, but how do you do it yourself? And what kind of thoughts were you able to replace in your head that took you to a better place? Just accepting that I wasn't to blame for some of the things that I I had done, or not done that I was a bad person, but 
the, the things that I'd learned, I had to unlearn certain behaviors because where I was taught things, you get guided by the wrong, I never really had a positive role model in my life. So I started to be kinder to myself and be like, oh, hang on, Ryan, like you didn't have the, the opportunities to learn this stuff. So if you give yourself the chance to learn this, then you can work towards it. So for me, going to feel the magic, that's where I started to understand my grief, understand it to my journey. And then that's what put me into working in the suicide prevention house because I really enjoyed supporting these kids. And I was just like, and I felt that I was just, I had something to share here and these kids were relating to me and connecting me with quite a lot because I was so open with these kids and vulnerability creates connection. And I was like, well, hang on, I really enjoyed this. It was tough, but it was fun. And maybe I can do more from this. So then I started working with adults in the suicide prevention mm. recovery center. And you start, you learn from others. So for me, like, when you ask me that, how did I learn? It was just, you learn from people, man. Like I've, I just love talking. I love meeting people. I love seeing how they've done what they've done. And it's like, oh, okay. Cause everyone's got their own unique life. We can't tell others how they feel or should do things. But as long as we're doing things that feel, make us feel good and aren't harming anyone else. So, but it's only when you have that willingness to share or at least to open up and listen that you can hear those other stories because 100%. before then, if you lock everything else out and just isolate yourself with your own demons, then you think it's just you going through that. And if anything, you have shame over it, certainly pain, mm -hmm. and you don't allow yourself to realize that there's a lot of other people in the same boat because you're just you're not even conscious of that being a possibility you're so overwhelmed and it's once you once you let that in and realize that you're human as are many others and that so many people that have come before you have gone through something very similar and a lot of them have found a way out of it uh, that you can yourself and then you can repay the favor as you are doing now and you've, you're a classic example of purpose from pain uh, where you've gone through something that would have broken mo most people but you've been able to harness it and now turn it into something that delivers true meaning to you in your life not that you have to do that if you've been through something like you have but yeah. in many cases um people f do find a way to use that to be of service and to help others not feel like they felt because well it's the most significant thing that you've ever experienced 100 percent, and that's the thing it's everyone's going to experience adversity in their life and i just experienced mine at younger and i never wanted to be like oh look at me i'm going through shit i never want to be a victim of my circumstances and everyone else will have adversity it's just we can't we don't blame ourselves for our, we can't we don't have to blame ourselves for our past but we are accountable for our future mm. i mean obviously circumstances are different each person but yeah if you can learn the skills and tools and understand and just be a kind individual make right decisions each day life is easy i know it's a very simple recipe and understanding it but us through COVID, it just showed like we was connection is what is key and that's what feel the magic's taught me man and that's uh, i love working at this place is connecting with other people is what gets us through and what creates magic genuinely man and that's what the adhd academy i mean it's, it is me creating it but i have such amazing support people that i know that believe in me that have given me the confidence to create this and that's and that's all i'm trying to show and why i do what i do now it's just i'll be as open as possible i don't really give a shit if it helps someone it's just yeah, I know. I, I go on a brand saying this is my ADHD, and I, I'm not. I, this is just me, but I'm not going to change who I am. No, don't else, change, so. man. Don't change. Yeah. We love it. Uh, so, how do you view the world now and your place in it? Oh, it's, that's an interesting question. It, oh fuck, you've got me there. Um, where do I view my place in this world? I've I'm just found my purpose. I just want to make a difference in someone's life, make people smile, make people happy, make people 
just help people, man. Like it feels good. I want to help others and just want to, I don't want to have some cool shit. I want to have fun. I want to enjoy life too. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you got to have a bit of fun too, man. You know, hundred percent. Because it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty heavy stuff. I think like that's a lot of where you find the purpose is in yeah. that difficulty, and that might just be where you have to go for it. Uh, but yeah, you got to got to enjoy it too, man. You got to like blow off some steam. But then I think like the Muay Thai is great for that, and you've obviously discovered that that old adage of discipline equals freedom. Um, which you've been able to apply to your your life as well, where and Lame. Muay Thai is also an example for life in terms of you know facing adversity and and mm -hmm. that discipline and then applying it and knowing that adversity is, is part of life and it's it's not like you had one test and you got over it and then that was it and you can tell everyone mm -hmm. about how you got over it. It's exactly. about preparing yourself as much as possible for stuff that you can't control that will come into your life and that's inevitable. Uh, and it's not something that we should fear, but it's something that we should prepare for. And then in the meantime, we should be enduring. We should be helping each other to get through it because we're much we're much stronger together. Hundred percent. And on my program, I facilitated online because I'm in isolation. I couldn't be at the camp in person. I tell them that like I'm going to experience grief and loss again. I'm going to experience tough times, but going through my grief and loss journey equipped me with a tool belt. I'm talking to kids. That's why I use tool belt or like. Batman's belt and you Batman's belt has multiple different things and working through your mental health and each day supporting yourself isn't just seeing a psychologist it's eating healthy going to the gym looking after yourself connecting with friends and that's the multiple different things that put on your tool belt yeah and that's what people think it's an, it's an easy fix or I do this one thing right everything should be like amazing no it takes work and it takes work consistently and that, that some people are willing to do it and some people aren't and yeah that's a good analogy, man. I like that. I like the tool belt because it's so true. It's just about preparing and equipping yourself to be able to face the challenges that are going to come yeah. your way. And it's not like you cure your mental health or you just get over whatever it is that you're living with. It's like, you know, you, you live with it and you make yeah. life as good as it can be anyway. Exactly. Why are you grateful to be alive? Too many amazing opportunities in life. My mum and dad put me on this earth for a reason. I'm, I'm here for a purpose. I'm grateful for so many things that have come my way, my dog, everything, every opportunity that, that happens each day. I'm just grateful for my health, everything. So much of what you're saying is an interesting perspective I haven't heard before, especially the ADHD stuff, not, not something that's discussed. And so great to hear you talk about it. And I love any time someone's speaking with that sort of level of enthusiasm. Yeah, it was really good. I know it's a good episode because I love doing it and I feel like I just like, would just want to be mates with you anyway, so then it's good. I appreciate that, bro. <laughs> Legend, thanks for that, man. That's it for this episode. If you're getting some value out of the show, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Everything we do is recorded in video, so follow Youngblood Men's Mental Health on Instagram and Facebook and Youngblood Mental Health on TikTok. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Youngblood Media, and please leave us a comment or send us a message if these stories resonate. We'd love to hear from you. And most importantly, please share the podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.